Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Street in Sunbury, Sunbury Motors Kia routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Our thanks to Zach Showers, Greg Wetzel, Kevin Hur for the high school previews in the previous half hour. This half hour in a few moments, we'll hear from Alan Moff from the Journal Record in Ohio as we talk Kent State. And then in the final half hour, Audrey Snyder from The Athletic. But first of all, courtesy of Greg Brown of the Pirates Radio Network, time now for our play-by-play call of the day. 2-2 offering and a ground ball headed up the middle and a base hit for Stallings. Luplo scores. Reyes coming to the plate. He will score. Jacob Stallings, a three-RBI day. And the Pirates now lead 4-1 to in St. Louis. Jacob Stallings, one of the really cool guys that was uh, came through State College. And they were the Pirates organization. Jacob had an outstanding summer here as the catcher. And, yes, his dad is Kevin Stallings, the uh, former basketball coach at Vanderbilt and at Pitt. How about that? I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Oh, no, Kevin came up and sat in the booth with me a few games during the course of the year. Just chit-chatted. And uh, Kevin and I remained friends. Uh, uh, you know, I know he had a rough go of it at Pitt. I mean, I got that part, you know, and yeah, I understand. But uh, I really, you know, I really like that family a lot. I mean, they're really into uh, um, Kevin and his wife really are into their kids and, and what they're doing. It's uh, and the fact that Jacob's now there. Jacob's first game with the Pirates turned out to be Father's Day a year and a half ago, and he got a hit in the game. Uh, so I, I'm thrilled to see Jacob do well. Yeah, you got to love that. Su- I mean, great guy and uh, really great family. I like the family a lot. Uh, okay, let's uh, bring in Alan Ma from the Journal Record and get his perspective on the game coming up this week. Alan, thanks a lot for the time. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Sure thing. What has Sean Lewis brought to the table uh, as a new head coach uh, at the program? Well, he's brought a lot. Uh, number one would have to be energy. Um, he's the youngest head coach in the in the nation. Um, his assistants are mostly younger than him, and they've just kind of taken it upon themselves to really breathe life into the program since they got here. Um, it's just been, uh, you know, trying to obviously forget about the past, which is so bad when with Kent State football. Um, you know, they haven't brought anything up. They gave everybody a clean slate and just kind of came in and tried to start everything new and just bring a lot of energy activity um, positive energy to the program Um, that's number one Uh, from a technical standpoint uh, change he's changed basically everything you can change Um, their offense obviously he ran the uh, he runs the up-tempo offense that they that he also ran at uh, Bowling Green and Syracuse he's brought that to Kent um, which is completely different than what they ran in the past Uh, they're you know they're trying to run a pull every 14 seconds Uh, Syracuse led the nation in plays last year uh, they've broken the 80 the first two games, so um, obviously that's a dramatic difference offensively. And then defensively, he's also switched to a from a 4-3 to a 3-4. So it's been uh, everything you can change. He's pretty much done it at this point. <laughs> sometimes when you take over a program and you want to implement a style, you sometimes have some square peg round hole moments until you get the guys that you want in there. How have the players fit how he wants to play? 
you know, I think he's a little bit – when you look at this offense and you see the average 12 points a game, and there wasn't much more than that the previous three years. I mean, they've been, you know, the worst team in the in the nation offensively for several years. Uh, and you would think you've got nothing. I mean, you would think you're inheriting a program with basically, yeah. you know, you better bring somebody in because there's nothing there. But it really hasn't been as bad as I, I think you thought it probably was. Um, they have some skilled guys. They're not real big skilled guys, but they have some speed. Um uh, they got three running backs, one of which he brought in, but the other guy was already here in Justin Rankin. Yep. Um, he brought in a guy by the name of Joel Shaw who's given him a, a big back. He's about a 230-pound guy uh, who can, you know, he's got some pretty good feet and quickness too. Um, and obviously brought in a quarterback, which is, is the main thing. I mean, there's no question about that. Woody Barrett's been um, even better than expected so far. But, uh, you know, he hasn't had to completely rebuild everything on that side of the ball. Um, I'm sure that there's definitely – uh, he, he wants to bring more size in a wide receiver, um, more speed, obviously. But, uh, you know, I think what he inherited isn't is, is, is as bad as he feared, at least. How do you end up getting a guy like Woody Barrett, who was in the Under Armour All-Star game? He then went to Auburn. Then out of Auburn, he goes to a junior college. What made Kent State uh, attractive to him, as opposed to maybe a Power 5 school, knowing that he had been at Auburn at one point? Well, obviously, they, he'd already had a relationship with Woody. He recruited him in the past, and uh, you know he's a good salesman. He's a young guy who can really sell. He can sell you. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, obviously, the opportunity to play right away. I mean, there's no question that's why he's here. Uh, you know, he's expected to. You know, he had to compete for the job. I think obviously it was his to lose the whole way, but you know, Coach Lewis wasn't going to let him know that. Um, but you know, you're looking at the guy's got you know this year and two more years left. You walk into this offense. With, with, with Lewis running it, you know you're going to get opportunities to shine. I mean, the, the quarterback is the main cog in this whole thing. Um, you have to make quick decisions. Uh, you have to run the offense real quick. You have to get everybody lined up. But, you know, the most important thing being he's going to put you in position to make plays and, and really make a star out of you if you're, if you're able to pull it off. So great opportunity if you're a young guy uh, kind of looking for a home. The Illinois game is interesting because the Illinois had a lot of guys, especially in the secondary, suspended for that game. They were suspended for the first two games, as a matter of fact. But still, what did they show in that setting that impressed you? Um, you know, I mean, you obviously you mentioned the, the, the square peg and the round hole type thing, and everybody was kind of wondering how that was all going to go down at first. You're sitting there thinking, uh, you know, this offense is quick and all, but if you're going three and out and you're not even running a minute off the clock and you right. do that over and over, you're in for a long day. So yep. that was the fear uh, coming into that game, and it really didn't happen. I mean, they were able to move the ball pretty consistently um, and kind of do things as, as as well as you could at least anticipate when you're opening against a Big Ten team in your Kent State. Um, so that was extremely encouraging. And just the fact that Woody Barrett, I mean, I hadn't seen him. You know, Coach Lewis closed practices, so I didn't get to see him much. Uh, the little bit that I did see of him, he didn't really look very good throwing the football. He had kind of an awkward motion. He wasn't mm-hmm. very accurate. And, uh, boy, he really threw the ball well that day. Um, he missed some balls, of course. He missed a downfield yeah. shot last week against Howard. But uh, that's going to happen. In, in general, he's been able to kind of hit the little hitch routes and the little swing patterns and the little you know, the little drop-off passes that you hope turn into big gains. He's hit the guys where he should have for the most part. And that part of his game has been a lot better than anyone ever thought. And the numbers could be even better. The wide receivers have 14% of the passes to them dropped, and the running backs have 19% of the run, of the passes to them dropped. The numbers could even be better. Yeah, they had, uh, I'd say at least, yeah, a dozen, 14 drop passes already. So, yeah, I mean, he's been putting the ball where he should. Um, 
you know, that's been an issue with them. That wide receiver in general has been an issue with this team for a long time. I think yeah. they have more talent at that position now, but you're still looking at a bunch of guys that have kind of made a splash here, a splash there, but have also made a lot of mistakes in between that and really shown any consistency. They certainly do have guys that can play the linebacker spot, including Keyshawn Gamble, who was moved from fullback over to the linebacker spot. Was that one of the reasons why he wanted to go three because of the talent they have at linebacker? I think that's just kind of what they do, but I think they were pleasantly surprised. Uh, they moved some people around, too, obviously. They moved uh, Nick Faulkner was a was a lineman last year who they kind of brought off the edge a lot, but right. uh, he's down an outside linebacker now, kind of doing a little bit of everything. Um, so they identified him definitely as a person. Okay, we're going to make the switch. He's going to be the main guy that we're going to move and try to make this work. Um, but, yeah, you also you bring Jim Jones back, who's an all-Mac guy, uh, really fast, uh, you know, all-over-the-field kind of guy, knows for the ball. Um, you put him in the middle along with Matt Barr, who uh, played really well in the opener against Clemson last year, then goes down with a knee injury. But, again, a guy that they, they pretty much knew what they're going to get out of, a very intelligent player who really works hard. So, um, it may, it certainly made the transition a lot easier when you're when you're when you're starting at their level with those two guys in the middle and kind of able to build around them. How do they view this uh, uh, game with Penn State? Well, it's kind of interesting. You, you know, you, you say all these things about this offense you're going to run and all these changes you're going to make. And you're kind of wondering, okay, well, when you go against an opponent like this, what are you going to do? And I tell you what, he has maintained that he's going to do exactly what they would do against anybody. He's going to try to he's going to try to kick the tempo up. He's going to try to, you know, get Penn State on their heels, not let them sub, all those little things that their offense does. Um, he's definitely not going to try to pull back in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> for better or for worse, he's going to all let right. every part of the offense loose and see what happens. All right, what's the reason? It's only been one game with Howard at home. Um, what's the sense you get around town, around the area? Is this something people want to go see? Is there a curiosity? Is it, or is it, I'm going to wait and see? I think he's uh, the, the program's as, as vibrant as it's been. Obviously, since 2012, they had that great year. But uh, you know, there's more there's more interest in the program right now than there's been in, in quite some time. Uh, people are very intrigued by Coach Lewis. He presents himself very well. He says the right thing. Um, he's not a lot. He's not afraid to say a little more than some coaches even would in some situations. Which, you know, makes it even more interesting. So, um, just just all the change. I mean, they just went through an era where their offense was very vanilla and predictable. Right. Um, and, and try to, even defensively, they just tried to, you know, the last time they played at Penn State, they did manage to do kind of what they tried to do back then. They tried to just get it to the fourth quarter and, and be in a close game and try to steal it. And they were actually within a score in the fourth quarter um, before things got a little ugly there at the end. But uh, now it's more of a gung-ho attitude. It's a lot easier to watch if you're a fan and uh, certainly a lot easier to kind of uh, jump on a bandwagon and see where it goes at this point. The MAC has to do whatever it can to get exposure. So let's establish that off the t- off the top before I get to this question. And the question is as follows. When it comes to fan participation, with all those Tuesday night, Wednesday night games, and the fact that last year, the last Saturday that the MAC played a game was October 27th last year, what does that do for fan interest in the league, even though they do need TV exposure? Well, you hit it on the head with TV. I mean, TV, the Max is just kind of a hostage to ESPN for a better, for a, you know, lack of a better term. Um, ESPN calls the shots and the Mac is just willing to ride with that, whatever it, uh, whatever it takes. They kind of think that, uh, the, the advantage, the thing that they sell it is like, yeah, um, you know, there's going to be some midweek games. Where we're going to ask our fans to come and it's going to be difficult and, and all that. But, uh, they believe they kind of have the, 
the college football show to themselves on those nights, and they're able to spotlight themselves, and they've had a lot of success um, as far as really presenting an exciting product and, and really having some very exciting games that people have been interested in. So it's one of those deals where you definitely have a negative, and it's a huge negative, but they just feel the positives outweigh it and that uh, the fans are just going to have to kind of go along with the ride as far as that goes. Um, you know, Whether you agree with that or not, I, I, I definitely feel I have yeah. mixed feelings about it myself, but uh, that's, the way they, that's the way they operate. I'm mixed about it, and here's the reason I'm mixed. I mean, I'm all for it because of the exposure part, so I've got that part. Mm. But part of the exposure is seeing empty seats. I mean, you know, you can talk style of play all you want, but you're sitting there and like, at some point ESPN has to do a wide shot, and there's nobody in the stands for these games. Yeah, I've been I've been at some, you know, I'm at the Kent State end of the year games. When yeah, the, I understand. No one around and it's cold, and yeah, it's, it, you look around and it's embarrassing. There's no question. But uh, and again, I, it's and, tough. I mean, what are you going to do if you're the MAC? I guess. If you're really right. trying to start to break it down, what are they going to do? Are they going to try to battle ESPN and not take those deals? That you know, of course they're not going to do that. They right. kind of let ESPN turn them into an infomercial is basically what it is. Right. It's a big promo package for their big games on the weekend. They go along with that. Um, I'm sure they hope they outgrow that at some point, and uh, whether that'll happen or not or certainly remains to be seen. But uh, they're in a tough spot. They're in a tough spot. Tell me about the running back spot, uh... Allen, uh, Justin Rankin, and Matthews plays some. I know he started against Illinois. And then Joel Shaw, who had a really nice game, the junior college uh, transferred. Uh, what's the running back situation like? They feel real good about that position. Uh, Rankin is a very versatile guy. Uh, he, he catches the ball out of the backfield a lot. He really hasn't caught a whole lot yet, but uh, he actually led him in receiving last year. Right. Um, so that's definitely a weapon that they have. Um, he just, you know, like I said, he's a hardworking kid that. Uh, I wouldn't call him a breakaway speedster by any stretch, but he broke into the open territory last year or last week, and nobody ran him down. He's mm-hmm. one of those guys. Um, Shaw's really an interesting guy in that just the size. I mean, he touched the ball for the first time out of the Wildcat last week and scored on a 15-yard touchdown. Right. Um, and then they give him the ball to two, and he just kind of runs a few people over and gets in like that. So that's a, you know, that's kind of an interesting weapon in the MAC level to have a guy that's 230 that can run pretty well as he can. So. uh you know, with those two guys, Will Matthews gets the ball a little bit as well. Um, but uh, they definitely feel like they got a little one-two punch there. Uh, a lot of versatility at that position. Size is not everything on the offensive line. You don't have to have three to thirty-pound guys to be successful. There are all various ways of doing it. There isn't a starter I, I don't believe for Kent State that is over three hundred pounds. As a matter of fact, what is Sean Lewis like now? You have to work with what you inherit. I understand that, but does he like to have uh, a quicker? Uh, lighter offensive line is that part of his philosophy, or is, or is that really a work in progress? Well, it's definitely a work in progress. Um, I think he EFC wants to have more size than he has, like you mentioned. Uh, these guys are real light, um, yeah. but he obviously puts a premium in being able to run and get lined up because they run play so fast. Um, you know, a couple of these guys are probably pushing three hundred, but they've dropped ten or fifteen pounds, right? Uh, just to try to catch up um, with the with the tempo. But uh, I tell you what, this line so far now. Obviously, this test they're, they're about to have on Saturday is a whole new ball game. But uh, they've really held up in the first two games, and there's no question coming into this year that that was the, the, the biggest question mark on the team. Um, they've struggled. They've struggled since 2012 to block people with any consistency or run the ball with any consistency. Um, the lines had injuries and, and, and everything else that you can have to go through as a line, and they've just struggled. And there was really no reason to think that was going to be different this year based on who they had coming back. Um, 
you know, their best guy they had coming back, uh, Adam Gregory, got a preseason knee injury. He's out for the season. So um, the fact that they've held up as well as they have through at least through two weeks um, has been, you know, really the, the, you know, the most surprising thing on the team so far, I would say. And finally, uh, I mentioned about, you know, Kent State, Penn State. Now I want to ask you about what are you, what are you interested in seeing in Penn State? Oh, man, it's just always interesting seeing you know, McSorley, obviously. He was uh, The last time I was there, he was his first start. And, uh, you know, you, you saw a guy that could do some things, but I can't say I saw a guy that was going to be able to do all the defense since then. Um, right. Very interesting player, very versatile. They, they just, you know, they rave about his leadership here and what he was able to do in that opener, especially when things got tough. Um, he's always obviously a fun guy to watch. And then just, you know, you're always just interested to see how, as these games carry out, you know, the Kent State depth versus the Penn State depth. Um, it, it's usually so dramatically different because um, you, you guys obviously have so many guys. Um, you can roll in there and, and to see how the games, you know, as things progress and as things get difficult, um, who's able to kind of hang in there with the with those guys? So that's always an interesting thing. Unfortunately, you get in a lot of situations when you're Kent State, and they play these games. They play three of these games every year. Um, so you you find yourselves in those situations where you, you find out about yourself in these games. So that's always an interesting aspect of it to to, to watch. Alan, really enjoyed it very much. Great perspective, and I appreciate it. Thanks so much for the time. I look forward to seeing you Saturday. Alan Moff, the journal record in Ohio. Next half hour, Audrey Snyder from The Athletic. Today's show brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kia Routes 11 and 15 in Hummels Wharf on News Radio 1070 WKOK. All right, uh, Audrey Snyder, next half hour from The Athletic. 90% of pro golfers believe Tiger Woods will win another major title. I think what he's done this year, I think, makes you think that. Um, you look at what's happened this year. Uh, number five overall in the PGA Tour in strokes gained overall. The four golfers ahead of him in that in that category combined for 10 wins this year. He's the only one that didn't in that group of five that did not win. Uh, you're talking about a guy who was finally loose and free with his his swing. 98% of uh, fellow golfers, and there are 59 players who were surveyed, 98% think he'll win another major, uh, that he'll win another PGA tournament. 90% think he'll win a major. One player summed it up this way, a year ago, no way. Now, no doubt. 11 top 25, 6 top 10s, 2 runner-up spots. Pretty good year. You can just get the driver under control. That's his big thing, the driver. And see, what's happened now is Tiger has gone from some people really, really loved him to a curiosity to a group of people always wanted him to lose to now being a beloved figure. He wins. It would be as popular as anything on the tour. All right. Next half hour, Audrey Snyder, The Athletic, as we continue on News Radio 1070 WKOK. 
Taking your calls at 800-795-9565. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Great to have you on board today. Thanks to Alan Moff from the Journal Record in Ohio, who joined us in the previous half hour, giving us a preview of Kent State and their game against the Nittany Lions on Saturday, which you'll hear on News Radio 1070 WKOK at 10.30 with a noon kickoff. And our thanks as well to Greg Wetzel, who previewed Lewisburg-Milton, which you'll hear on 100.9 The Valley tomorrow night at 7 o'clock with a 6.30 airtime. And our thanks to Kevin Hur and Zach Shower. Zach, game will hear the Seelands Grove side and Eagle 107 beginning at 6 o'clock with a 7 o'clock kickoff. And, of course, Chickalimi with Kevin Hur, 7 o'clock the kickoff and 6.30 the airtime. In a few moments, Audrey Snyder is going to join us, and we'll get her perspective from the Athletic as to how Penn State has played so far this season and getting ready for Kent State. Again, that game will be Saturday at noon with a 10.30 kickoff. Meanwhile, Bucknell is playing at Penn at Franklin Field. That will be on Eagle 107 Saturday. The Eagles are back in action on Eagle 107 Sunday. Steelers on 100.9 The Valley coming up on Sunday. With that, now we bring in Audrey Snyder from The Athletic. Audrey, welcome. Great to have you with us. And we'll stick with the theme that we've been talking about the last couple of days in the show. Penn State football, game one to game two improvement. What did you see? It was interesting. I mean, I think it, it was basically an upgrade on the tackling for the defense, but yet you see how, how this Penn State defense looks in the first half where they're just getting gouged on the ground. You get only giving up six points and turning it around in the second half. I thought that was really strange. Um, and to me, that was kind of, hey, this should be a wake-up call. The defense can't play, can't have a half like that in Big Ten play and expect to win a game. But yet at the end of the day, they only give up six points. So I thought that was, that was kind of bizarre. I think they're still getting their footing there. Uh, offensively from week one to week two, I think we continue to see an offense that started out fast, scored on the opening drive in both games, but yet they're not pleased with this explosive play margin and they haven't hit their benchmark of 16% of explosive plays. So certainly there's room for growth, and I think part of that factors in when you look at the drops and the big plays that were called back because of penalties. So, room for growth on both sides of the ball, but definitely uh, strides were, were made on both sides. After watching K.J. Hamler in two games, what do you think? Man, it's, I think Steve, even the one of the things I wrote this week, even the most optimistic Penn State fans probably couldn't have expected this guy to have this much of an impact this soon. Um, you know, you watched him, you saw him in high school, what he could do. But then there were always questions of, okay, would he be the same after the knee injury with the speed? And size-wise, would that be problematic? And that has not been the case so far. I mean, he's found ways to impact the game. We saw it on special teams against App State and also on offense. And then, of course, last week you see it with the speed sweep and then also with the touchdown catch. And this guy's electric. And I think it's been maybe magnified even more just how good he's been because Dewan Johnson and DeAndre Tompkins have struggled uh, while Hamler and Brandon Polk have really stepped up. So wouldn't have been how I would envision this receiving core coming into this year with your two top guys struggling and two other guys stepping up. But it's certainly worked, and, and Hamler's looked fantastic in the process. 
Fourth career start coming up for Miles Sanders at tailback, his third in a row this season. Through two games, what have you seen from Miles Sanders that can make him effective for Penn State moving forward? Yeah, his arm and tackle rate is something I'm writing about now, and it's, it's really impressive. And we saw that a little bit the last two years in his limited opportunities, but this guy just, I mean, he just certainly keeps going. And I think the more carries he gets, the more comfortable he's going to be. And we didn't really get a chance to see that too much week one. We did a little bit in the fourth quarter and then, of course, in overtime, but we really got to see that against Pitt. And I think ultimately we'll see him catch some more passes out of the backfield. And now you have to wonder what that pecking order looks like behind him after Ricky Slade fumbles twice against Pitt. James Franklin was clearly animated after that second fumble. And we did see Penn State use some two-back looks against the Panthers with Sanders and Mark Allen back there. So I think there's still a lot of confidence in Ricky Slade. I think they'll continue to give him the ball. But, again, when you put a young back in there, and we saw this early on with Sanders in his career, pass protection, fumbles, that's 1A and 1B, uh, and that, that's certainly a big risk. So I'm curious to see more so the guys behind Sanders at this point because he's looked really, really strong so far. Younger players getting a shot on the Penn State defense. And, of course, a lot of people think of Micah Parsons right away. But Jesse Lucata got his first mm-hmm. extended run at linebacker, plus a few others. What kind of initial growth have you seen in those guys from week to week? You know, Steve, it's, Parsons has been around the ball wherever he's been. I mean, yeah. that onside kick that wasn't supposed to be an onside kick, there was a squib kick. He's the guy who recovers it. You see him flying around on special teams. The guy is a knack for finding the ball, and I think that's why we're probably going to see him in a starting role at some point this season. And how soon he gets there, I really don't think that matters because he's going to play a lot either way. But the more comfortable that they can continue to get him, I think we're just going to see see them kind of continue to rise and, and really go through the roof. I mean, the guy's a playmaker. And Lucetta as well. I mean, that's that's a big spot that they've been using these young guys in. You saw Lucetta getting work at middle linebacker late in the game against Portland. And Ellis Brooks on the field a good bit. Then um, a guy who's not young, but he's taken on a bigger role, Jarvis Miller. You know, they've got a lot of different people in there. Lamont Wade played more, and people say, well, is he young, is he not? I mean, he made the jump from corner to safety, and I thought it was telling that on Penn State's second defensive series against Pitt, Parsons and Wade were the two guys who subbed on and played the entirety of that series. And then when they went to the nickel, it was Donovan Johnson who came in, another younger guy. So they're building depth, which I think at this point in the year, you really can't ask for much more. Kevin Givens was able to get in and play his initial game of the season against Pitt. What did you see in Kevin Givens, and what kind of domino effect do you think it had on everybody else? That was huge. Uh, you know, it comes in seven tackles. I believe it was two or two and a half tackles for loss. And what a difference this defensive line looked like with Givens week two than it did without him week one. I mean, that to me was really, really noticeable. I mean, he's just disruptive. And we always heard and saw so much about his unique set of skills and how he's, you know, a quick twitch guy. He's one of the strongest players on the team. And that showed up definitely Saturday night. And I think as we continue to move forward with Gibbons, at some point we're probably going to see him pick pick back outside the defensive end like we saw at times last year against Iowa and those sorts of things. 
Um, but they need to continue to work on those guys behind it and build that depth because they like to rotate a lot of guys. Just the way they play, they will continue to do that. But now you you have a, a drop off because you're going from the first team to the second team, and I think that's where you know second team, third team, they have to continue to get those guys more reps, more comfortable because another guy, freshman PJ Mustafer, has played quite a bit as well, and that's a new huge spot to put a freshman in. Um, but he's you know he's been on the field, he's been doing more than just getting his feet wet. So there's a the guy that they're also going to rely on this year. What really made a big difference for you watching Penn State special teams play? Boy, Gilligan was huge. Uh, I think I, I wouldn't say Penn State fans take the punter for granted because years when they haven't had good punters, it's been magnified. But Gilligan has really been, the last two years, uh, such an X factor, such a weapon for them. And also the fact that you're out there with two freshman specialists especially kicking in really, really floppy, terrible conditions uh, at Pitt. And so there's room for growth there for sure, but we've seen the explosive elements in this return game, Stephen. We, we saw it last year for sure, but Keisha Hamler against that State, of course, DeAndre Tompkins with the touchdown against Pitt. And I think they have even more options that they could be using back there if they wanted to as return guys, but you have that explosive element, and that's where games can really swing wide open and you look at it from Pitt's perspective last week and their special teams were atrocious um, where Penn State you know it wasn't it certainly wasn't a perfect special team showing for them um, but given the conditions that factor in for sure but I just think we're going to continue to see that that third phase evolve and they've really got a lot of speed and a lot of talent I mean you've got Micah Parsons playing special teams you have Jesse Lucetta playing special teams and that's just one other way that they can continue to get these guys comfortable. Game one to game two, now step three's coming up. What are you looking for in step three this week? I'm curious to see Juwan Johnson and DeAndre Tompkins, and can they put the drops to rest? Can those guys take a step forward? Um, to me, that's been one of the biggest, maybe the biggest surprises so far. Um, and also, it's this defense that shows up for Penn State, is it the defense that we saw in the second half against Pitt, or is it the defense that was getting gashed in the first half against Pitt? And that's where, you know, consistency comes into play. And talking with Travis Miller this week, that was one of the things he had said was, you know, week one to week two, okay, they got better at tackling. They're swarming the ball more. But they, you know, still think that even though they give six points, there's a lot of room for growth. And Miller said, yeah, you know, we'd like a shutout. So, you know, against Kent State, Steve, you always have the question of, okay, how much of a measuring stick is it, if anything? Uh, but then you can at least point to it and say, well, Kent State played Illinois week one. Lions, of course, open up with that Friday night game against the Illini next week. So definitely some things to keep an eye on. And I'm curious to see, because of the matchup, how many more younger guys we might see. Do you see Jahan Dotson this week? you see Justin Shorter this week um, and some of those other guys that I know uh, fans really have been asking quite a bit about. Audre, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. You got it, Steve. Take care. Audrey Snyder from The Athletic. We'll wrap it up in a moment on News Radio 1070 WKOK.
Okay, coming up here in the uh, final half hour, or it should be the final few minutes of the show here in the final half hour, thanks to Audrey Snyder from The Athletic for joining us on the show today, and also to Alan Moff, who joined us from the Journal Record in Ohio, on Kent State, Greg Wetzel on Lewisburg, Zach Showers on Sealands Grove, and Kevin Herr on Shikolumi. College football, that game in Charlotte, between Old Dominion and Charlotte that was supposed to be played on Saturday is being played right now. And Charlotte in the second quarter leads Old Dominion 10-6, about 11.5 to go in the first half there. Uh, The game between Boston College and Wake Forest is going to kick off at 5.30 tonight. That game is also in North Carolina tonight. They're both 2-0, and and that's a 5.30 start, and that's going to be on ESPN about 36 minutes from now. And uh, Tennessee Chattanooga and Utah State at 8 o'clock tonight, but that game is out in Utah, so that's not an issue. Uh, let's see. Ravens and Bengals tonight. The nation will be riveted to that one. Oh, you want to talk about two teams that have no national following at all. I mean, the Ravens have a f- absolutely great fan base in Maryland and some in southern Pennsylvania. Outside of there, nobody. Zero. The Bengals, I'm not even sure they have Cincinnati. Rockies, great run down the stretch. They lead Arizona 5-1, to one, bottom of the fifth inning at Coors. Marlins lead 3-2 at City Field over the Mets, middle of the seventh inning. End to three, Washington at Nationals Park leading the Cubs 1-0. And pretty limited schedule tonight in baseball. Phillies don't play tonight. Pirates don't play tonight. But the Orioles do. So I was kidding around with uh, Audrey Snyder from The Athletic. I said, gee, I tuned into the uh, to the the Athletic today, and the lead story was Ken Rosenthal. And Ken Rosenthal, by the way, is a, a terrific baseball writer. He also has, by the way, Baltimore roots like Tim Kirchin does and so forth. But he wrote this big story about the Orioles. Like, oh, I don't think I would have gone there. <laughs> There's no interest in that team either, except for Dick and Milton. I mean, he loves them, but nobody's more disgusted about it than he is. I mean, think about Dick growing up. He had the Colts with Johnny Unitas and Lenny Moore and Raymond Barry and uh, and uh, some great teams. Mike Curtis, Tom Matty, you know, Dave McNally, Brooks Robinson, Frank Robinson, Mark Belanger, uh, you know, Mike Cuellar, Jim Palmer. I mean, you know, eventually Cal Ripken Jr. and uh, and and Eddie Murray. Now this is what he's got. <laughs> Wait, that's that's awful. It really it, it's amazing what a winning sports team can do for a city. Just the just the psychology of it. You know, it helps businesses and things like that. But people feel great about it. Like, hey, look at Philly with the Eagles. Yeah, Philly with the Eagles, they love it. I mean, that's, I mean, they feel like they're the kings of the world. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, I mean, one more reverse, one more reverse with a pass off into the quarterback, and this just—it's going to go insane. <laughs> Billy special number three, we're looking for now. Oh uh, yeah, we just—I mean, we're going to run that play every game, <laughs> every game. We're uh, I have it. a feeling that'll be in the back pocket now for—I'm not going to say for good, but I think maybe for the rest of the regular season. But we'll see. Oh, you never know with it. Doug P. So. Unless they need it. I mean, I understand why he ran it at home. Now, turn, oh, yeah, I, I agree with that, yeah. I, I thought it turned the game around, but I totally. also think the psychology of running it at home for the fans there, and they completed it. I mean, you got everybody, because you know, those fans, most of them watched it on TV. You know, only a scant percentage went to the game out of Minnesota. And, you know, now they run it at home, and it just changed the entire environment of the game. And the bottom line is, Philadelphia has a championship mentality now where they know how to finish. Atlanta does not have a championship mentality. They don't know how to finish. Situational Champions, football, Doug P. always preaches it. Yeah, well, it's it's situational football, but also there's a psychology as to how you finish. You have to be able to finish. It is It is very hard to get yourself to a playoff level it then is it's even harder i think to get yourself to the elite level and that's where that's where penn state is now penn state is a terrific football program now trying to cross that last threshold to the playoff which gets you to elite right that's where they are that's that's a that's a big step yeah, hey, by the way, Alabama, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Matt. I was going to say, um, the um, first set of nominees are out for the 2019 Pro Football Hall of Fame class. Tony Gonzalez, Heinz Ward, Alan Fanega, a couple a couple Steelers that are mentioned there. Ed Reed, Champ Bailey, London Fletcher, some of the names that are on the list right now. And Steve Wisniewski of Penn State. Yep. And now we get to hear the suit beat the drum of he Heinz just came Ward. Back. He just came back here with his with his hands up, fist pumping, ready to go. All about the Heinz Ward. He has no shot of getting in this time. Zero. <laughs> now, five years from now? Okay, five years from now. The next four years, he won't he won't he won't make the cut past ten. It's just you know because there's just there's only five spots available. It has nothing to do with talking about Heinz Ward's career. It's just but there are only five spots available, and there are going to be some first timers coming up that are huge. You're listening.